Welcome to AEC Marketing for Principals, brought to you by Smartages, where we help design and construction firms navigate sales and leverage marketing to win more projects. Here are your hosts, Katie Cash and Judy Sparks. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the AEC Marketing for Principals podcast. I'm your host, Katie Cash, and as always, I am joined by my partner in strategy, Miss Judy Sparks. Most of our listeners out there, you probably know this by now, but if anyone is joining us for the first time, Judy and I have both spent our entire careers in the design and construction industry working alongside some of the best brands in design, engineering, construction, and real estate development. And through that time, we've learned what a high stake and what pressure is put on these firms in today's competitive environments when it comes to earning the green light for a project through the dog and pony show. Yes, today we are talking about interviews, folks. We are talking about presentations. Um, You know, just like proposals in the world of design and construction, interviews and formal presentations seem to be part of the requirements for earning and being selected for project commissions. And through our role at Smartages, we've had a lot of opportunities to work with firms, large and small, um, on really big projects, really small projects, also on indefinite delivery projects, or you know maybe working on a P3 initiative where multiple brands are coming together to present in a formal interview scenario. And we've done lots of coaching along the ways. And so what we thought we would do today on this episode is talk really about the art of the pitch and what successful firms get right in the presentation room. So with that, um, I'm going to bring my partner in strategy over into the conversation, Judy, and let's, you know, let's talk about what that art is behind those presentation pitches just a little bit. Thanks, Katie. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it truly is an art. And it is not something that everyone, especially in our industry, takes uh, to naturally or intuitively. So uh, I have to ask you, Katie, have you ever walked into an interview situation where your group of architects or group of engineers or group of developers are really eager to practice? Oh, I mean, I think everybody waits all day, every day for the chance to practice interviews. I mean, they just love it. It's their favorite day of the year. Exactly. So obviously, listeners, there's a little bit of sarcasm going on here, but it truly is an art. And what we've learned um, over the years is that the hesitation to practice usually comes from just the pressure that one feels that they have to perform. And um, lots of times our clients, you know, or almost all of the time, really, our clients didn't go to school to be actors or salespeople or marketing people. They didn't really think about, you know, oh, what are my presentation skills going to be when I'm practicing as an architect? I think that they were really very focused on becoming the very best practitioner in their craft. And then once they hit the real world, they realize, oh my gosh, there's this whole other skill set. Not only do I have to do the work, but I have to convince somebody that I can do the work. And that's a completely different skill set. Selling somebody on your ability versus your actual ability to do the work are completely different. So, you know, if you think about who our clients are, uh, wicked smart people, we have some of the smartest engineers doing mission critical facilities for, you know, the likes of Google and Verizon and AT&T. We have the top 
uh, mixed-use design firms that are creating these world-class destinations, and they're really good at that. But these were the super smart STEM kids in, in school. You know, they went to college, they went to the best schools, they came out really smart, but it's amazing to see them shrink when it comes to, now you've got to convince me that you are really good at what you're really good at. So we have sort of found a way to break down those barriers and walls and help our professionals shine like they deserve to shine. So Katie, um, I will tell you that, you know, it's an art form and it is uh, a process. I think a lot of uh, our customers, until they've gone through our process, they sort of feel like they've got to throw all the materials together and think about how they're going to solve the client's problem. And they've got all of this information, but the process of organizing that information, categorizing that information in the context of a presentation where they can articulate their passion, their ideas at a level that resonates with their audience and convinces them that they are in fact the best choice and to establish that chemistry in a presentation is a learned behavior and um but you know we are we're pretty proud that after 11 years of doing this um we have a pretty strong hit rate of of wins you know i think the last time we checked it's 85 percent hit rate of wins and i attribute that really to the process. So for our listeners that haven't had the chance to go through our process, um, or maybe might not really understand what you're talking about, if we were to share some secret sauce, what would that process boil down to? You know, it really boils down to first accepting the fact that you're not that special. I know, I'm just going to let that sit with our listeners for a minute. Technical preeminence is what our listeners uh, typically want to hang their hat on. They're really proud of their craft, and they should be. There are a lot of talented architects, engineers, um, program managers in the workplace. Um, in fact, you see you know, one architect go from one national firm to another national firm or maybe go to a local or regional firm, but they're still just as talented as they were when they were in those other places. So this idea that you can win an interview by saying, hey, my resume is more impressive than your resume or my engineer is smarter than their engineer, um, you really need to accept first and foremost that you're not that special. And I mean that in the most respectful way, that you're... Um, that anyone on a short list is more than capable and qualified of doing the job. So let's just put a pin in that for a second. The other thing that you have to realize is sometimes when everybody's qualified, and I would even say a lot of times everyone has a, some kind of a relationship with the client, really what's going to win it is the interview and whether or not your ability to tell your story is more effective than your competition's ability to tell a story. So we really help clients figure out how to tell the story and inspire the listener. We are big believers that people buy everything. I mean, everything, goods and services, emotionally, more so than um, 
really off the scorecard. I know that lots of times there is a scorecard at play and that it's intended to keep the selection committee objective, but really whether or not you give this team a three or a five is still very subjective. So your ability to articulate your story is really, really important. We at SmartAGs believe that presentations should do three things. They should inform, they should influence, and they should entertain. And, you know, what we find is our customers are really, really good at the inform part. But it takes a little practice and creative authorship to influence the audience while you're informing them. And then it really takes a lot of comfort in what you're saying to actually be entertaining in that process. So we think that recognition that you're not that special, recognition that the presentation itself may be the very thing that will win you the day. And in order to do that, that presentation has to do three things, inform, influence, and entertain. So, you know, I have been indoctrinated with this philosophy. I um, I use that whenever I'm working with our various clients to help them craft their story together. But a lot of times, you know, it sounds really great. And I think people do get on board with regardless if someone's buying a professional service or a car or, you know, a new pair of shoes that they do. There is some type of emotion that is coming to the forefront that's making them determine yes, I want to buy that or no, I'm not going to get that today. And what I always tell the teams that I'm working with is the emotion for our industry really is trust. And in a presentation format, when you get 15, 20, 30, you know, maybe you get an hour, but I mean, let's be honest, most of the time you get roughly 30 minutes to give your presentation. How can you come across as more trustworthy or, um, you know, more capable in that scenario than your fellow competitors. And I mean, you hit it right out front. You're not that special. Everybody's kind of the same. So how do you work with teams in those coaching scenarios to help them come across more authentic, more genuine, you know, more trustworthy, if you will, in that inform, influence, and entertain formula? How do you do that? Well, I think it really goes back to storytelling. I think that you have to give the audience very strong reasons to believe. I mean, you could throw statistics out uh, and, you know, it, it's going to cost X per square foot. This is what we've, we've done on other projects. Here's our proof. But if you tell a story about how you were able to get a project back in budget, or you tell a story, a real life situation, it's the stories in the interview that people are going to remember. They're not going to remember the facts and figures. They're not going to remember even some of your design ideas unless you couple them with the story, which is, you know, we learned this about your customer. Therefore, it influenced our design to do this, and it will help you by yielding these results. I think that you have to tell those stories and then you have to back it up with strong reasons to believe. We know this because we had a very similar situation on another project where this was this is how we handled it. I think, yeah, you're hitting it um, 
a spot right there. So I think a lot of our clients are really good at telling stories, especially when they're portfolio stories, right? Everybody's right. designed a similar project or built a similar project, or you know maybe they came up with the development financing for a similar project, and they're really good about saying what all they've done before and why they're different and you know better at that, if you will. But they they fall short, or at least in my experience, a lot of them fall short in connecting the dots for the audience as to why this experience matters for you, Mr. Owner, and why you are, your project, if you entrust it to me, is going to perform better because of this experience. So how do you help them kind of pull that into the storytelling where there, there is a sense of relevance, but it's not just them droning on about their own personal accolades? <laughs> well, Katie... <laughs> It sounds like this might be a fresh experience the way you're talking about it. <laughs> uh, not a fresh wound, not at all. <laughs> Maybe. So, um, so what, what I will tell you is that you're spot on in that our, our customers love to sell the features of their firm and the features of their solutions, but they fall short because they forget to hone in on why it's good for the client. And so we call that the so what factor. Every time you want to, to project your opinion onto a client, uh, you need to also complete the uh, thought with helping them connect the dots to this is good for you because. So sell the benefits, not the features is what we always say. And the other thing that I notice sometimes is while the intentions are good, a lot of times our customers tend to want to sell the things that they want to sell rather than take a step back and consider what does this customer want to buy and making it easy for them to buy. So I've seen time and time again where we know um, if we do the proper homework on who the buyers are who the potential selection committee will be. And sometimes you don't know, but you can make some safe assumptions and do some research and uh, craft sort of a buyer's persona based on semi-fictional habits and characters of things that you know about an owner based on your experience. For example, there is a certain research university in Atlanta that is well known for its... Um, hypersensitivity to cost. And we know this uh, through just our relationships in the industry. We know this owner. And we know that at the end of the day, while they may not always take the low bid, uh, they will be very, very interested in how that said professional, whether it be a program manager, an architect, or a contractor, is going to um, keep cost control at the forefront of their methodology. So I've seen clients go to this customer where their number one single issue is fiscal responsibility and cost and sell features of great design absent of any conversation about cost. And while they're great design ideas, it's not resonating with the customer. And it would be very, very easy to sell those design ideas, but sell them in a way that they're great ideas because they're affordable or they're great ideas because they will accrue life cycle savings. Uh, 
understanding what your customer wants to buy is key and giving them strong reasons to believe that you have that solution better than your competitors. So what I'm hearing though is it's kind of, you know, marketing 101 for those of us that have grown up in the marketing world is you always need to consider your audience. Who's going to be in the room, which um, organizations they're representing and what those corporate missions are, those those truths, if you will, are and understand how your story and how your point of differentiation is going to play and support their agendas. Exactly. And let me give you an example. Yeah. Uh, set the same said university, this research university that's very cost conscious, um, they have a university research park on their campus. And they do a high level of uh, research. And there's four research universities um, in Georgia. And I would say this university probably is not the one that's top of mind. And they had a um, research building that was designed by a national science and technology oriented firm. Um, and when they did the original building, uh, they ran into some budget issues and they had to shell two floors of the building. And so a couple years later, an RFP comes out um, for the build out of those two floors, the design and build out of those two floors. So the national firm that did the original building really did a great job, even despite the fact that the budget um, was not adequate to fully accommodate the program at the time, um, the client recognized that that really wasn't the architect's fault and they really did a great job uh, executing what they had to work with. And they had been doing some other work with the campus as well. So we have this incumbent that knows the building, knows the site, knows the client. And then we have another national firm that um, has similar credentials, also has some experience with the client, but not as much. And then we had our client who had just opened an office in Atlanta, um, also a national science and technology design firm, no prior experience with the Board of Regents, no prior experience with this university, but they were shortlisted based on the basis of resume. So they called on us and said, you know, we need you to help us with our interview because you know, we really feel like we're the underdog here. So we started to really dig into what do we know about this customer? And um, what, we, what we learned is that there was going to be a selection committee and it was going to be comprised of the Board of Regents as well as members from the university, as well as uh, the end user, the Dean of Science. And so we started to think about, okay, what do these different stakeholder groups care about? And we knew that, you know, from the state's perspective, they really, really cared about having a 50-year building that was going to be easy and affordable to maintain. We know that the campus is hypersensitive to the, um, the cost of this building and wanting to get as much program for their dollar. And we knew that the end user was very concerned about being able to be competitive in this world of academia where, you know, they want to attract the very best researchers that come with the grants. They want to be able to attract the top students. Um, and so 
you know, the informed part of the presentation is all the same. When you look at the three contenders, everyone's going to talk about best practices and lab design. Everyone's going to talk about on time and in budget. Everyone's going to talk about, you know, how they're going to um, execute their methodology and approach and have collaboration at the forefront. These are common, common themes. So in this case, it was the story itself and how they told it in the interview that made the difference. So we came up with a theme um, called Performance by Design. And the theme was broken up in three chapters for the interview, uh, institutional performance, human performance, and building performance. And the institutional performance was really about the vision and mission of why this university was even doing this project. What difference would it make on a macro level? And then we talked about human performance. How do design decisions within this building impact the day-to-day -day life of that researcher and faculty member? And then we talked about building performance. How do we bring um, sustainable design practices to play to allow for that building to work efficiently and um, overall produce a lower uh, total project cost. So at the end of the day, our client won. And I promise you there was nothing in their presentation that was materially different in terms of ideas that the other two could not say. But I think it, they took the time to take all of those facts that, that they, were going, they were prepared to inform the client with, wrap it into a story to bring in an emotional slant, and then execute their story where the client felt a strong reason to believe. So we really are big proponents of storytelling and making facts and figures um, stand out in a way that your competition is not going to think to do. So I have two follow-up questions on that story. You know, it's a great story. It really is. Um, the two questions that come to mind are around this idea of storytelling. And I'm getting the sense that in this scenario, you really need to set time to practice as a group on how you're going to, you know, hit that trifecta of inform, influence, and entertain in a cohesive manner to support the story and the script and that angle that you want. So that's one question. I want to talk about, you know, how much time should firms be using when it comes to presentation prep? What, is, what does that really look like? How do, how do you make sure you get the right people in the room? Um, all of that good stuff. And then the other item I want to talk about is just what the marketplace is doing today in terms of you know, we'll call it table stakes. When we get to the short list, like what are contractors doing in terms of um, site logistics plans and how are they bringing in technology? And, you know, I, I always get the question whenever I'm working with design firms is, hey, do I really need to do a design concept here? So I want to talk about just what the today's buying owners are expecting in the room. But let's start with the art or the, the need behind physically getting your team in a room and actually practicing what you're going to say before you just show up and wing it. Okay, so getting your team in a room is an absolute must, but it starts way before that. So we, we believe that, like all good stories, um, 
whether it's a screenplay or it's a book, uh, a short video, you know, it needs a storyboard. And in the case of interviews, we call that a pitch memo. And all good stories have an author. And so um, having the time in the beginning to uh, write the entire story, and we do this uh, routinely for our clients, where everybody gets in a room, downloads everything they know about the story, takes a strong look at who the buying audience is and what they care about, also considering the competitive landscape and what is your number one unique differentiator and coming up with an overarching theme for your story or your title. And in the case of the, of the example I just gave you, that, that theme and title was performance by design. And then the marketing person on your team or the lead project champion or a third party like us should be able to sit down and craft the story from beginning to end. And it's not a script, but it's an outline that basically says, this person's going to open. Here are the key talking points that you're going to hit on. This is how you're going to tie it back to the theme. This is how you're going to transition. The second person is going to do this. And so you go through the whole story. We typically um, find that, you know, we can get this done in you know about 24 hours and then you distribute the story and get your team on board early. I think that is so key because I think that if you just assemble a presentation by its pieces and parts and then come together in a room and try to figure out what your story is going to be, uh, the buy-in is happening way too late in the process. So you need to get your team rallied around this is what we're selling. This is our pitch early. Once everybody has signed off on that, a couple of things happen. One, everybody knows what their part is, and they can start thinking about their talking points and how they're going to deliver their part early in the process. Your marketing team has a completed thought process that they can then build a visual around. And then your um, players on your team know that they don't need to worry about certain topics because it's being covered elsewhere. So giving your team the ability to see the whole story, who's everybody, you know, identify what everyone's part is early in the process will help them come to the table more prepared. The other thing is that um, if you try to craft your presentation as you go, it is really wasteful in terms of time. So, you know, Ex, you know, designing a presentation as thoughts are occurring to you. It's just an inefficient way to execute. So having all of that documented ahead of time will save probably about 50% of production time on the back end. Well, and two, I mean, for the audience member, when you're just kind of presenting stream of consciousness style, it's really hard to follow along. And at the end of the day, you know, you sit there and you're like, what? the heck did I just listen to? Like, what was their point? So it's, it's hard to come up with, a, you know, being able to rate them on their performance when it's just kind of all over the place. And it's a little sporadic. And I find that when I work with teams that, you know, like to use that kind of method, if you will, uh, before we get them into our process, I find that sometimes the presenters are actually contradicting themselves, and they are poking holes in their own 
philosophy <laughs> just in the process of doing it. And so then they become, you know, more of a dysfunctional team. And then you start seeing the relationships break down. And then, you know, if you go back to that emotional, um, what which triggers the emotional bind of trust, they don't even trust each other. So why in the world, contractor, architect, engineer, fill in the blank, am I going to entrust you with my multi-million dollar project when you guys can't even get your act together for 20 minutes? Like, exactly. this is not going to be a great two-year engagement. Um, so I just, I see that a lot breakdown in the presentation practice room. That is a really, really great point, Katie. Great perspective. Um, and I, I, I do think you know, you wouldn't go into a design presentation um, after you've been hired unprepared. So why would you go into an interview unprepared? And so we find that the preparation ahead of time really helps with the rehearsal. So back to your question on how much time should we have your team in a room actually practicing? If you do the front end piece, you know, a good half day, four hours of Pure rehearsal should be enough. And, and we find that if you do the entire process, um, that the quality of the presentation is just so much better. Um, I think that people can think about it for a longer period of time, but it's more passive thinking than active thinking, but it makes a huge difference. I do want to ask a question because it just came top of mind for me as you were saying that. I do think that getting your project team in a room and, and spending, you know, a couple hours together, especially to walk through the, the presentation outline is great. I often get asked by a lot of clients like, hey, we've got these rising um, project managers or these rising designers. We haven't put them in front of on a presentation team before, but we want to go ahead and start getting them some presentation coaching. And um, I don't know about you, but in my experience, I have had a hard time helping those young and rising individuals understand presentation coaching in one scenario when the, it's outside of an actual, you know, project pursuit pitch because you can't, there's no way to duplicate that pressure or the sense of urgency or immediacy for getting, you know, your your ideas together and understanding how you're going to pitch your solution. Cause in all scenarios, again, your audience changes the, the challenges of your projects change from time to time. So what's your take on just general presentation coaching? And if someone out there in our listening audience was considering doing that, like what does that curriculum look like and how does that help actually win work down the road? I think it's important to understand. Um, I would say that you, really need to be reasonable about your expectations. Um, you know, there's so many studies show that one of the top fears of most people is public speaking. And if you are not accustomed to doing it, you're not going to learn how to do that overnight. So the idea that you could bring in a presentation coach for a canned presentation coaching session, and it's going to make a marked difference, um, I think is unreasonable. I'm not saying that there's not value in that. I know we're asked to do that quite often and, and we're happy to do it. But I think it's really important that that curriculum includes not only the practice of speaking um, and you know body language, verbal and nonverbal communications, all of those things, but it 
it also needs to teach somebody, how does one prepare for a presentation? What are actual steps that you can take in your downtime when you're faced with the pressure cooker situation of, oh, I have this interview in two weeks, I have all my billable work going on, and I've got to somehow craft something interesting to say and be dynamic on my feet with very little notice on a project that, uh, let's face it, while the proposal process was going on and a few key people you know, at the top of the pyramid knows the ins and outs of this project, maybe your BD person knows the ins and outs, but I'm on the front line and this is the first I've heard of this project and now you want me to get up in front of people and in three minutes convince them that I'm their project manager? Let's be reasonable is what I would tell our audience. If you have people who are naturally fearful of public speaking, having someone come in to coach them with some canned presentation coaching is not going to make a huge impact, but maybe encouraging them to put themselves in social situations. Toastmasters, for example, is a wonderful group where people can overcome their fear of public speaking. I think that most cities have a local chapter and they meet regularly. I would encourage your people to join something like that. Um, I would also maybe take them to networking events and force them to talk to strangers once in a while. So those things, I think, um, have a bigger impact over time. And then using this process of organizing your content early. So you're expressing to them in written and verbal form ahead of the presentation rehearsal, this is what's going to be expected of you. This is what the whole story sounds like, and this is your two-minute piece. And also remind them, look, we just need 120 seconds of your life. I think that's important. A lot of these young or inexperienced presenters, when they are faced with being part of a presentation team and they see that they have 30 minutes or 60 minutes to present, they're thinking, oh my gosh, I have to talk all that time. But when you have a whole team environment, they're talking for two minutes and it's about a subject matter that they know like the back of their hand. You know, they can talk through a project schedule with the best of them. And I find that that's, you know, helping them understand that they are, they're playing one piece. They're not in the spotlight the whole time. Um, they're an extra. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, really does help. So your second question, Katie, was about table stakes. And I'm glad you brought this up because let me tell you, I think what owners put our customers through is absolutely incredible um, and expensive. Uh, the cost of client acquisition these days is unbelievable. Um, As you know, as a firm, we do a lot of primary research. And that research is with our customers' customers. So if you recall, last year, we did a client survey of uh, about 30 public sector agencies and institutional clients, like healthcare clients, uh, K-12 Uh, institutions, both public and private. And we asked them about their marketing preferences, particularly when it comes to interviewing, to find out the answer to should I or shouldn't I produce this work for the interview. And, you know, if you're an architect, you know, that can be a rendering, that could be floor plans, that can be some elevations, that can be 
uh, 3D animation walkthrough. It could be a Lumion application. It can be a lot of things. If you're a contractor, it could be a full-blown estimate. It could be a schedule. It can be a cost model. It could be uh, a BIM model. So all of these things cost a lot of money. And obviously, you know, your, your project um, needs to be big enough to justify that. Um, but what we're seeing today is even on the smallest projects, that level of effort is, is taking place. So it's become a new bar and firms are having to learn how to clear it. Um, so the perspective here is if you're going to have to go through that type of expense every time to win a job, then you really need to be very, very strategic about the number of projects and which projects you pursue. The other thing I would say is talking to these owners, where their position is, is if I'm going to be building a $30 million building and I haven't worked with you before, I want to at least understand how you think and the way you think. So giving me a glimpse of that before I buy you brings great value. And if there's three firms on the shortlist and two of them have gone through the expense of giving them a cost model or a full-blown schedule or a 3D animated site logistics plan or a like animation or high-level rendering and one firm hasn't, they feel like they're taking a bigger risk with the firm that hasn't because they haven't taken the time to show them how they think or what their approach to design is or what their approach to construction is. It's not necessarily that they're buying an idea. They just want to measure, are we aligned from a thought process standpoint? So I think that the hesitation comes in when when um, when firms say, well, I hate to put a, a finished design in front of them because I don't want them to feel that I'm presumptuous. When we did our survey and asked that very question, um, a very small percentage of owners came back and said, I would be offended by that. Yeah, I think that, that that's really helpful. And I, I know a lot of times the clients that we work with, they get caught up in exactly how to present their ideas so they don't come off as being presumptuous. So, you know, they'll they'll present a schedule and say, you know, this is our this is our initial or this is our scheduled concept just to show you how we would think through the milestones and we want to be mindful of your end date. But of course we, you know, will reserve the right to produce a final schedule at the kickoff. And so they find ways um, to work around that, but to show how they plan to communicate the schedule or how they plan to communicate the site logistics and safety plan or how they plan to communicate what their thought processes are in terms of, you know, their design ideas and how they might address the site. So I think all of that is really good. And table stakes, you know, they, with technology today, I think, and how hungry firms have been in the past, especially coming out of the recession, these owners have found great value at being able to see inside the minds of, of who their potential partners might be and, and helping that conversation move forward. Well, Judy, I really appreciate your thoughtful time and sharing some of the best practices that you've learned along the ways and certainly sharing some of those insights that we've gained through our firsthand knowledge. So for our listeners, you know, to sum up today's podcast, really, we wanted to share with you that presentations aren't going anywhere. They are, in fact, here to stay. You can probably 
imagine yourselves along your career journey participating in one, if not many, presentations um, before a selection committee to be awarded a project or awarded a long-term contract. And when you find those opportunities, we would just encourage you to embrace our idea that all presentations should do three things. They should inform your audience. They should influence them that you are the best service provider for their need, and they should entertain them. Make their time worthwhile and make sure that you're memorable along the way in a positive light, of course, and do so by utilizing an emotional storytelling angle versus just giving them flat facts and figures. So we really appreciate you listening in today. Again, this has been the AEC for Marketing for Principles podcast. And from Judy Sparks and myself, we hope you enjoyed today and you learned a little bit and we will see you out there. Thanks so much. You've been listening to AEC Marketing for Principles, brought to you by Smartergies. If you like this episode, please let us know by visiting aecmarketingpodcast.com where you can learn more ways to position your brand and sell to owners. 